peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So they say, I uh, never talk about religion or politics. And uh, today I'm going to do both. So by the end of the sermon today, I expect you all to hate me. Um, but that's okay. Um, I, it's my goal to just talk about uh, what's been happening in our nation. And by the grace of God, I pray um, that I might share with you what Jesus might have to say about it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, you are God and, and we are yours. And Lord Jesus, we know that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But we pray today that we might know your ways and we might know your thoughts. Uh, when, uh, when we go wrong, please forgive us. In your name we, we pray. Amen. Amen. It's, it's been a violent time uh, in America the past four weeks. I remember uh, growing up um, hardly ever seeing the flag at half-mast. And uh, in the past couple years, it's been at half-mast. It feels like every other month. I remember growing up, the first time I ever saw a flag at half-mast was when the, the Challenger uh, shuttle uh, blew up. And um, I remember seeing it at half-mast for, for quite some time after that. And thinking, boy, this is, this is a hard time because something bad in our nation has happened. And now the flag is at half-mast regularly. It's been a violent time. Uh, four weeks ago, 49 people were murdered at a nightclub in Orlando. And this past week, uh, a graphic video of, of um, Alton Sterling being shot. And then as the anger spilled over, it increased after another video of Philando Castile bleeding to death inside his car after a traffic stop. Protests around our nation have taken place, and as you all know, uh, Dallas. 11 officers shot, five of them murdered and killed. It's violent times. So I'd like to share with you just some of my experiences um, with you and, and what I think Jesus might have for us today. Um, my wife, Heather, uh, used to teach for Head Start. And Head Start is a, a federal program uh, to do preschool for uh, kids who are growing up in, in poverty. And so it's designed for three and four-year-olds to give them a head start on kindergarten. And uh, it's, have study after study has proven that Head Start works. These kids, they, they do better in kindergarten than, than kids who don't go through preschool experiences in similar economic situations. And so she taught for Head Start in Eastern Oregon, a largely an agricultural community, a largely a migrant Hispanic community, a very, very poor population. But for the most part, a safe, small town. And then uh, she went back to college to get her bachelor's degree, and that's where we met. And uh, we got married, and I said, oh, I'm going to St. Louis uh, for seminary. You want to come with me? And she said, yes, I would like to come with you. And so um, she interviewed for positions, preschool teaching positions, on the phone. And so we're moving to St. Louis, and none of us have a job. It's kind of an unsettling time of life. And, and she gets a job over the phone to teach for Head Start in St. Louis. I'm like, well, that's impressive. They must have really liked you. And, and then we moved to St. Louis. And then she started work. 
And um, I didn't go see where she taught until about a month later. And if I had seen beforehand where she was going to teach, I would not have let her gone there. Um, I grew up in an LA area, and I've seen some pretty rough spots in LA, and they don't compare to East St. Louis. It is a rough part of town. Uh, really rough. There were uh, staff, I don't know, about 16 people on staff. There were two white people on staff, and the rest were, were black. And um, very friendly, very nice. And they worked with, again, three and four-year-olds in poverty. Um, these kids really struggled. Uh, poverty is, is hard, but, but lots of people go through poverty. But what these kids were going through was instability. Um, they often moved from place to place. Uh, one of her kids was homeless. And he started acting out in class. And finally, Heather figured out that they were sleeping in a church basement. And they would sleep in one church basement and then go to a different church basement. And that's how this three-year-old lived. Um, violence was prevalent. Crime was a regular occurrence. It's hard stuff. And the church in the inner city is, is working on these issues. They know it's a problem. They know they've got to fix it, and they're working on it. So one of Heather's friends, her teacher friends, invited us to a worship service at their church. And we're like, oh, great. So we go down there. It's a Sunday night service, and she told us the wrong time. <laughs> so we were an hour early for the service. So her husband meets us at the church. <clears throat> and he says, I'm so sorry. My wife told you the wrong time. But come here. Come, and I'll let you into the church building. So he lets us into the church building and locks us in for our safety. About a half hour later, people start showing up for church, and uh, a man comes up to me and says, oh, I, I hear you're a pastor. I said, no, no, I'm not a pastor. I'm a seminary student. Oh, well, we're so glad that you're here, pastor. And uh, welcome, welcome. I've been in seminary for two months. <laughs> like, great. So uh, the service gets started, a place is packed, and uh, it's everything you would imagine about a black church. The singing is phenomenal. I mean, everybody's in harmony, and they're clapping on two and four, you know, and I'm like, wow, this is great, this is great. And uh, the, the lead pastor gets up, he says, I want to invite all the pastors here to come on up, all the pastors here to come on up. So in their parlance, pastor would probably be like elder for us. So the men in the church start walking up, and they got chairs set up behind the, the pulpit. And the gentleman says, and Pastor Haynes, you come on up here too. Pastor Haynes, you come on up. I'm like, what? So um, they got come up. And so I'm, I'm sitting on the chair behind the, the worship teams over here. And, and they're still singing the service. They're doing more songs. And these guys are all up, and they're clapping. You know, and I'm like the white guy. So uh, they have uh, one of the uh, men gets up to preach. Young guy, I would say about 20 years old. And you could tell this was his first sermon ever. Because he's up there going, so um, the wages of sin. And the guys in the back are cueing him. Death. The wages of sin is death. You know, death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You know, and I'm like, oh, 
this poor kid, this poor kid. And then he ducks his head down, he pauses, he comes back up, and he starts singing the sermon. It's all a singing, it's a cadence, it's a rhythm, and he is rolling. And these guys, they all stand up. Yeah, praise Jesus, right? They're standing up, they're clapping and patting him on the back while he's, while he's preaching. And he's going, and after 25 minutes of this, he sits back down and he is exhausted. But this one guy won't let him. You get back up there. Get back up there and preach. And so like, this poor kid gets back up and he starts sharing some more. And then he exhausted. He sits back down. He sits back down. And they're patting him on the back. Like, yeah, pumping him up. And the lead pastor gets up and goes, oh, it was wonderful, wonderful. Pastor Haynes, can you come up and share with us? <laughs> supposed to sing? I, I've, been, I've been two months in seminary. I don't, so I get up and I say, um, and we are the only white people in the room. And I say, thank you very much for inviting us to this service. It's very kind of you. What a great way to praise God by celebrating with him with our family and friends. Thank you so much. And I sat my butt back down. <laughs> and they're like, yes, amen, 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 preach it, preach it. They're working hard in the inner city. They're mentoring young men. But it's like a drop in the ocean. Their resources are so small. And the needs are so large. My, my twin brother used to teach in inner city L.A. And what uh, their studies have shown is that in elementary school, those inner city kids, they're, they're doing uh, poorer, they're doing worse than kids out in the suburbs. But not by much. It's not by much. Worse, but, but not by a lot. And then they get into middle school, and everything plummets. Like the combination, I mean, you remember middle school. Middle school's hard, and that's when things are going well. And then you go through middle school and all the, the, tr the angst and identity crisis and, and stuff of middle school, plus all the problems of, of poverty and, and, and instability and, and violence where you live makes it hard. And racism is real. It's often not overt, but it's often present. Uh, they would have teacher work days, and so my wife would go out to lunch with her, her teacher friends. And one day they went to lunch at this restaurant. Again, she's the one white person with this group of, of black ladies. And they sit down at this booth, and they notice across the way there's another booth, and someone has left their purse in this opposite booth. And so the ladies start talking about what to do about this purse. And so they start arguing about who's going to pick up the purse and give it to the hostess at this restaurant. Because none of them wants to do it. And finally, they come across the decision that, um, well, they'll just go and tell the hostess where it's at, but none of them touch it. And it's going, what's wrong? Just go get the purse and turn it in. What's the big deal? And through further discussion, she realized that every single one of those ladies had been falsely accused of either crime or unethical behavior. Every single one of them. If that had happened 
you know, if you're at Avon or here at Edwards and you're in a restaurant and you saw a purse sitting there, you would, you would just grab it and turn it in. It's no big deal. But for them, they had to think about it. You might even go through the purse, find the person's cell phone, call them up, and then say, hey, your purse is here. Come back and get it. That's what we'd do. But they couldn't do that. Can people work themselves out of the inner city? Absolutely. But it's hard. It's really hard. Family can't help. They don't have the resources. Education is subpar. Violence is prevalent. And instability is the new normal. And on top of all that, black people receive multiple messages from other people that their race is not as trustworthy or admirable. It, it happens. It just does. Inner city life is hard. Police work is hard. How many of you work in customer service? Right? How many of you have ever had an angry customer? Okay. How many of you have had all your customers are angry? Every single one of your customers, okay, you have, yeah, because you're in that same field. Police work is hard. No one ever says, officer, thank you so much for pulling me over. I really appreciate it. I was speeding. I would like you to give me a ticket. And you know what? I wasn't going five miles per hour. I was going 12 miles per hour, so make it for the full amount. Because the negative reinforcement is what I need to make sure I will not speed again in the next two months. Right? No one ever says that. All of their customers are angry customers. It's hard work. And uh, my dad was a police officer for a number of years. And when you're a kid, there is nothing better than having your dad as a cop. It is the best ever. Because you know kids will argue about whose dad is the best? When your dad's a cop, you win every time. Every time you're like, my dad's a cop, put all your dads in jail. Drop the lunchbox, walk away. <laughs> you always win. And one time, my dad, uh, he was working, and he picked my brother and I up for a birthday party. And he threw us in the back of the police car, you know, with the, the, the shield, the glass shield, plexiglass shield, whatever that thing is, and, and the locked doors, you know. And when you're six years old and your dad's driving the cop car, it's the best ever to be locked up in a cop car. And we're waving the people driving on the road. And we pull up to the house, and my dad accidentally flips on the lights and the sirens, you know, and all the other kids run out to see what's going on, and you, you pop out like just a bad six-year-old in <laughs> a cop car. You know, it's the best ever. But um, it's not the best ever if you're married to a cop, because <laughs> it's hard. Remember, uh, one time we were at an, an angel game, an angel baseball game, and uh, my dad was working the game. And we're sitting there, and um, my dad got it so he could work our section. He just arranged it so he could kind of see us as he's walking up and down and seeing stuff. And, and there was a woman uh, in the section, in the row, in our section, but like down below, and, and she's like cheering on the crowd, you know, and trying to get people to cheer up and stand, and, and people weren't doing it well enough for her. And so she started taking her clothes off. <laughs> May have had a few too many, right? My dad's working. So he hustles down the stairs. He's got to escort this lady out. And everyone starts booing. 
everybody, this whole crowd is booing. And as you can imagine, it's a joke, right? It's, oh, let her stay, let her stay, you know? As we imagine would happen. But they're booing my dad. My brother and I were seven years old. We turn around and we start yelling at the crowd. Stop booing my dad. That's my dad. And we were so upset, my mom had to take us home. We couldn't finish the game. And that's just a small, small thing. The time when someone tried to kill my dad, that was a big thing. My dad doesn't like to talk about it because he shot back and he missed. <laughs> Police work is hard. Um, my dad got out, uh, mainly because my mom asked him to. Uh, he taught criminal justice at Cerritos College, and his master's degree was stress-related disorders and police officers. And as you might imagine, any single stress-related health issue that you can think of, they all have. And they have a higher rate of divorce than the regular population because what they go through is so stressful. Uh, and every traffic stop could be their last. As we found out here at Glenwood Springs, right by in Gypsum. It's hard. And there's the added thing that sometimes their customers want to kill them. It's hard stuff. Police work, inner city life is hard because it's unstable and it's violent. So where does the church, where do you fit in in all of this? I want to share with you something I read from Chad Bird. He says this. It can seem in times of violence, when people are calling for political, cultural, and legal changes, as if the church is largely irrelevant. Worse yet, the church can make herself seem irrelevant if she embroils herself in political, cultural, and legal changes and forgets her primary calling, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. See, at the heart of the church is an icon of violence. It's the crucifix. And on that cross, God cried out and bled out for the life of the world, the very world that killed him. And it is this cross that the church must carry into the nightclubs, to the convenience store parking lots in Baton Rouge, inside the car of Castile, and onto the streets of Dallas. It is a strange irony. But in a world drunk on violence, it is only on the cross of violence that there is hope for peace in our world. For on that cross is the God who fills the cavernous wounds of humanity with his grace. He pulls us away from racism, from bloodlust, from hatred, from the vortex of evil to carry us to a freedom that is found by dying and rising with him. The cross does not exist to answer all of our questions of why. Rather, it redirects our questions onto the only answer that finally gives us peace. God does not tell us why evil will happen. He does not say why bad things happen to good people. Instead, the cross tells us in whom we have hope, no matter what happens. 
That hope is in the Son of God. That hope is in God who chased after our world after we sprinted into the night. He himself plunged into the darkness. We made our home. He sunk himself into our world. He saw violence. He suffered violence. And he transformed his own violent death into your salvation. And as he stands in our cosmos of night and slavery, he is the only pillar of light and freedom we have. Whatever else may happen in the next few weeks or months, whatever political, legal, or cultural changes may be enacted, our country and humanity, all humanity, will still be flawed beyond reckoning. And the church will still have the only message that conveys true and lasting healing. A message that is not written in words, but rather in the body, the broken body, the slain and now living body of Jesus Christ. So we take that healing. Take that healing into our blood-soaked streets. You take that healing into our broken world. You proclaim that healing that this is a God who died and bled for you to redeem every evil that haunts every human heart. To reconcile every Every hatred that turns brother against brother, sister against sister, religion against religion, this is the God of the cross. The Son of God, who gave his all for you, draws you into his cross so that you might discover hope, you might discover healing. No matter how deep the wound, no matter how broken your heart, no matter how violent the world around you may be. The church may be many things. But my friends, we are never irrelevant. As long as we preach, we share, we live Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for our nation. Lord, we are a land of the free and home of the brave. Lord, but because of sin embedded in every heart, we are never truly free until you make us free. As we read in our gospel lesson for today, the sun sets you free. <laughs> you are free indeed. Lord, may we share the freedom we have in you. May we share the forgiveness we have in you. And Lord, not in a way that points and condemns and say, you really need to, or if only. But rather, come and see Come and join the broken, the forgiven. Come and see. Lord Jesus, you are a gentleman. You never force us, but rather you invite us, you plead, and you share your presence, your forgiveness, your cross, your life. 
may we share it too. Amen. May the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, guard your heart and your mind. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and uh, praise our God.